Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. I'm Josie Long. I'm Robin Ince. <laughs> I, I'm going to talk a lot lower because I'm 48 now. Are you? Yeah. It's also because today we're doing one about art and I feel that I should uh... talk in a... Uh, I mean, the Hockney was absolutely fascinating. I mean, a lot of Hockney I, I really don't take to, but when he deals with autumn at the beginning of this century, I found a fascinating use of uh, red... Brownness. I wish I could do a uh, Sister Wendy voice. Oh, like, oh the colours. But I can't. <laughs> I'm terrible at impressions. No, I think we're both. We're, we're both. But w- w- what we lack in ability to replicate, uh, we make up for in the passion of the attempt. I think that's how I see most of my life. No, you're an incredible um, mimic. Not really. The uh, so we're joined by uh, Dr. Yunino Ramirez, who I met by chance uh, through social media, t- and we talked about uh, Stanley Spencer, because you do Art Detective, which is a, a great podcast, and you, you've currently got a series on BBC Four. And uh, so we're going to today is uh, an art special. Yay! Of uh, <laughs> happy days. See, that sounds like you're not enthusiastic, but I'm <laughs> thrilled. Believe me, I am enthusiastic. <laughs> well, you, you work very because you've literally you've just just come straight from uh, leaving, getting some students started on an exam mm. and then you've got wow. to go and get to Kensington Palace in about 35 minutes Indeed from I now have, yeah. and in between you're going to talk about Julian of Norwich but you're writing five books at the moment or something? Sadly yes I, yeah I, I mean I you said can I usher some enthusiasm into my voice oh no I didn't mean it like that <laughs> the reason Josie is because every, uh, this is like an anecdote that I tell but every single report my mum had from the age of three to when I left university included the word enthusiastic and she came to see it as a dark word because it basically oh. meant I don't sit still I don't listen I just exude so that and that is kind of how I get through life really just powered by coffee and enthusiasm but five I, books though so yeah. what are your five uh, what, what are the five things that you're, you're the big five what can I? What can I tell you? Um, so I can't tell you about the big oh, series because that right, hasn't yeah, been the announced yet. So that's secret. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm going to be doing a book about Beowulf. Very exciting. I'm going to be doing something. Well, an, an art detective, a sort of an art detective book to accompany the series. And and yeah, I'd love to tell you about the big one, but I I'll have to come back and tell you. About well, this is already one of the most enigmatic podcasts. We <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's when we have scientists on, they can reveal all and equations. <laughs> when we have art on, it's like I can't tell you no. about my secret. Use your book. imagination <laughs> and your sec- creativity. <laughs> so let's on art the. Uh, I've just been reading um, the the Julian Barnes collection of uh, essays, and they seem to be absolutely fantastic. What's I ju- the I just title read, of that collection? Uh, I've got a staring at not staring at the sun. It's staring. I've got it somewhere. I'll just. I absolutely bag, love the fact the that you have like supermarket bags full of books. Mm. Keeping an eye open. I, so I've um, had a couple of Julian Barnes. Do you remember I, when we were recording one of these, and I was like, "There's a bit about balloons. There's a bit about balloons," and it's actually like the beautiful one he wrote about grief. But yeah. the bit that I remembered was like, "There's yeah. balloons yeah. in it." You must read this book. It's all about balloons. I read the book about balloons. <laughs> Josie it was very sad. I only remember the balloons. But his, I mean, his essay about uh, uh, Freud. Uh, 
yeah. is uh, Lucian Freud. Is I'd, I'd read that Geordie uh, Greed book as well, and it's quite a disturbing thing when there's a there's a bit in it where for instance he talks about the fact that uh when he first looked at the paintings of, of lucian freud's mother he thought oh that's very that's almost like the way hockney did the picture of it and then he finds out that it's after his mother attempted suicide mm. was it and mm. never really she obviously survived but as a very depleted and damaged and it was like then he went now mm. now i can paint her and that bit where you go wow something runs rich through the freud family doesn't it when it comes to mothers ha! it does I, I mean i think this is something we discussed with stanley spencer as well but but one of the things i find difficult because most of the art i did for my research was medieval art and most of the time you don't know who the artist is because they're anonymous you know they're lost to the sands of time mm. whereas when you get into more modern art the biography of the artist can really dominate how you see the works it's almost like you can't i mean like with someone like frida carlo you can't take frida carlo away her life away from her art because the two are so entwined and then there are other artists where you sort of think actually am i imposing too much of my own you know psychoanalyzing of the artist onto yeah. this reading so so it is it's but but freud is a, is a particularly interesting example of course um, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, it, like because you were mentioning before we started that you studied, uh, we did the same English course yeah. and about how I did an essay on Sylvia Plath and it might as well have been my feelings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my it gosh, was just so not Sylvia Plath. I think the reason, because I, I was going to read history um, at the university, that's what I was going to read right the way through. And in the last year of my my school, this amazing English teacher turns up wow. and she'd been to St. Anne's and read English and she gave me a book of Sylvia your plath on like day one oh. and there i was i was like this is my life now <laughs> i am a teenager female with angst and it was I mean, that was my reason for doing literature with sylvia plath and then i don't know kind of deviated off into medieval quite quickly yes but did you do course two i certainly did classic Geeks course do you know who asked well, me about on, course? Can we just go, right because this might get a little bit niche so it, can it we is just find gonna out get very niche. what course two is because not everyone listening will know what course two is so if you do english at oxford university uh, which uh, was a real thrill for me. Um, you do um, there's there's two courses, and the mainstream course is kind of a general over overview of English literature. I was going to say overthrow of English <laughs> literature, but then uh, course two is only up to about fifteen thirteen. Yeah, we don't something. even do Shakespeare. That's like properly modern. <laughs> And the other person I know who did course two, I know a few people who did it, um, and one of them is Helen Zaltzman, who you might know, she does a brilliant podcast called The Illusionist, oh which is all about language. And uh, she she did course two. No. Um, my oh. boyfriend, Johnny, did a similar thing to course two, but he did it in Dublin. So basically, lots of people I really love are medievalists. It's good. Like Nick it's Gill, good. the playwright Nick Gill did course two. No. Yeah. Well, this I think I think being a medievalist is is a very strange thing if you try because now I'm in this funny position of being an art historian. That's my day job. That's mm -hmm. what I teach. But also I write about literature. So the book I've just written is about Julian of Norwich. So I'm still kind of well in love with literature. Love Julian of Norwich. Julian by the of way. Norwich. We are going to talk about because she is a legend. But then on top of that, I'm I'm constantly making documentaries that are history programs and history for me is such a weird subject because actually I, I, I sort of see myself as a cultural historian and the way I access history is through all the the texts the ideas the philosophy the art the things the, the things that are part of a time mm -hmm. to kind of create it and I think what medievalists do because there's so much anonymity because we don't have necessarily the names and the personalities dominating a lot of what we do we can sort of have this this maybe kind of bird's eye view of what a culture looks like from above um, I tend to find medievalists very laid back people and, and most of them can 
can drink pretty well, which is always a good bonding experience. <laughs> Flagons too. of mead. Flagons of mead. Yeah. Real certainly... ale. In horns, drinking <laughs> horns. It sounds like there's a, there's a lovely description uh, from um, Terry Pratchett when he talks about the first time there was a, a meeting of all the fans, you know, the, the first kind of convention of uh, Discworld. And he said, uh, they drink like a rugby club and fight like a chess club. It's <laughs> a really beautiful, you know, I, I can imagine there's similar thing to with the medievalists. <laughs> question was terry pratchett at all into that period of do you know what i i'm not an expert i I, I just read his his collection of kind of essays and and journalism i I don't really i mean i think he was probably something of an autodidact wasn't he so may well have uh have have, but i i cannot answer that and if i do i'll mean yes he wasn't (laughs) his initial fact i'm lying well, this is so. In in terms of going into into art and writing about art, who was the first? Because I think one of the hardest things, obviously, is to take a subjective experience and in some way uh, deliver to a reader a sense of what you know. Oh, that one's brilliant. Oh, I didn't like that one. You know, someone like John Updike as well. I think writes uh, very beautifully about giving you some sense of. Oh, I get why he thought that Magritte was brilliant. Mm-hmm. So who was the first person or, or who were the people that influenced you in terms of going, right, that is the way to translate something that is visual and personal experience into something which can be understood? Well, again, this kind of goes back to course two. <laughs> All roads. Um, I think I, I came to art history in such an indirect way. I mean, I mentioned I started off doing literature, then do, specialising in medieval literature. And then we had this option to do archaeology as a module, randomly, which was amazing because suddenly these poems, these I, I am passionate about old English literature in, a, in such a sad, geeky way. I read it to people just to get them to fall in love with it because the sound of it is so beautiful yeah. and it's alliterative, it's... It's all about patterns of speech, you know, um, and it's meant to be recited. So when well, I fell in love with it, it just got under my skin. But I wanted to know where that literature, the elegies, you know, the wanderer, the seafarer, where that came from. And so when I started to see things like the Lindisfarne Gospels or the Sutton Who Treasures. The Sutton Who I was thinking oh, about. The Battle of Malden and oh, all of that stuff. I know. Well, come on then. So, you know, it's gorgeous yes. and seductive I, and mysterious. And, and if you go to the Holy Island of Lindisfarne, oh, you can feel it. It's so bizarre like, that's my first book Josie I wrote The Private Lives of Saints which is exactly about oh those experiences God. on those sorts of places please give me a copy of it <laughs> it is it's completely about sites and locations and why they feel powerful uh, but, I need to but write the objects it down right too. now so that I'll I don't forget you so I can thank you <laughs> but yeah no the 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 idea that um art was part of this 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 world but but such a different type of art because it's not paintings on the wall it's not sculptures it's not architecture it's not those three graces it's personal private portable pieces mm. that are stunning and and beggar belief in terms of how they were created with no electricity no no light flowing water and yet they are incredible creations so my journey into art was completely different to someone who say went to the courthold and mm. studied you know the impressionists um but the other big stepping stone sorry now i'm doing a lot of talking here but the other big stepping stone for me was when, when i got to oxford got my place so i, I went to a school in slough um, ne- no, never intended, never meant to get to Oxbridge and just got there by the skin of my teeth and thought, spent three years thinking, I'm not meant to be here. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is so, like, if anyone here's listening and you're Don't believe from that. a normal background and you're, I said normal is probably a too loaded a term, but you're from uh, an, a non privileged background yeah. and you're at um, Oxford or Cambridge and you're 18, you're going there. Uh, imposter syndrome there is so normal if you are it, it is not normal, from privilege, but it's not right. But it's not right because I lecture there now and, and I'm trying to turn the tide and I'm just sort of saying to every student that comes in 
do never ever feel that anxiety. If your brain is good enough, you're meant to be here. Yeah. So forget about it. But I didn't feel that. I felt for, for three years I wasn't meant to be there. And, but I did get a place. And my mum had been a special needs teacher my whole life. She'd been my special, yeah, my teacher uh, at my primary school. And what she hadn't told me, and what she did tell me as the doors on the on the train were closing, as I was going to take my place up at Oxford, was, "Bye, darling. By the way, you're heavily dyslexic. Bye." <laughs> <laughs> and the doors closed. I'm off to Oxford to read English. Nice one, Mum. You could have warned me like a little bit earlier. But what I realised by kind of, I, I mean, I'd always known I, I had problems with spelling and and collecting information verbally, um, but I didn't know why. Um, but I did realise that I can store a lot of information visually. I can remember yeah, any, thousands of images. And so slowly through my postgraduate work, I sort of drifted away from literature and into visuals. And so then I ended up, you know, now being an art historian. But it was a journey that needed to happen naturally and evolve uh, rather than a decision that I am going to be an art historian. And now I've been able to go back and, and train myself up in the discipline like you say, you know, much more more traditional art as such. But it's exciting. It means every day I'm learning something new. It's great. Is, is there somewhere that for, for people listening that is a good starting point? for Because there is a point you can go around an exhibition and you can enjoy everything you see, but it really there are certain times where by reading certain books, by just getting a little bit of art theory, it does change things. It's yeah. like with everything, you go, you know, the night sky looks different when you found out more about why stars are as they are mm. and what is going on there mm. and hydrogen helium, all those things. In the same way, the process of, of why certain periods of art are as they are and what you can see in a painting. Mm. So is there anyone that you think, now this is someone to start with just so you think, I like art, but I want to be able to see a little bit more well the, the 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 sort of mark one if you like for art students is gombrich's story of art which is still still holds up and what it does is it gives you that narrative it gives you that timeline um i'm a real sucker for a timeline i love to know when the things happened and why and how they're related to the things either side so that's really useful but i'd say uh, one of the things that that a lot of students and this is again is going to go back to doing english but we had to do a module on theory theory and historiography or theory and methodology and I remember being chucked in in my first year and being made to read Russian formalism and just ending up in tears rocking in the corner of my room because I understood one word in every 20. Oh so dry <laughs> couldn't be more dry. It was awful and it put me off theory for for years. I remember thinking that critical theory was like this horrible thing <laughs> that some people seem to like but that I could just basically ignore and cut out of any of my study because I was like it's irrelevant to the text and it's irrelevant to the world. Exactly so true uh, and and I think that that theory <laughs> that's the irony at the heart of critical theory really because what it was supposed to be was a liberating of the voices so instead of your you know enlightened 19th century gentlemen of of means white gentlemen of means you had women's voices you had people of different ethnicities people of different genders and and suppo supposedly it's it's saying we have voices too so let's listen to how our view might be different from that mm. there's this the, the wonderful painting by Manet a bar in the folie berger where you've got this reflection of a gentleman in a hat coming in from the side and it's the suggestion that that Manet's sort of throwing it to the academy and saying you all look like this you are all white men with beards flanners in these hats but then you start to impose different viewers and say well what if I was a lower class woman standing in front of this painting how would I feel 
And that's the essence of what yeah. theory is trying to do. And yet you're absolutely right, because through the language that they used, they were almost having to prove that their academia stood up to generations before. And so it becomes more and more of a conversation between a few people who know what they're talking about to the exclusion of others. Which in itself is like their insecurities about whether or not the things that they were trying to push could be elevated to that level of like... Uh, so who, who, should, yeah. who is it that who would you recommend in terms of like I was reading sometimes I, I, I think I'll read some Susan Sontag and I think I oh, don't get any of that at all and mm. then I'll, but I was reading an essay the other day from uh, the collection of uh, on photography and it really I read it and I thought oh yeah that wow that really changes the way that I see yeah. some of the photos uh, and, and so it was it was really it, it did change change my viewpoint yeah. um, who are the people that you think for, for those things right I want to read some critical theory and I don't want to immediately be scared off. Yeah, well, I still teach with Eric Fernie's book um, on theory of art history, which has a collection of different essays that are seminal to, to the development of the discipline. It goes right back to Vasari, and it, it kind of moves up to, to you know the last 10 years or so. There's an article towards the end called The Death of Art History, which is really interesting about is the discipline actually defunct now uh, cheerful thought for me <laughs> in my work um, uh, but I'd say <laughs> I'd be so I want to read this book don't worry about the last one the yeah, last yeah. one I think is not a very Ignore good that essay one. it's, we'll one, it's mainly about day. balloons Josie it's, I, I think it's an essay about balloons <laughs> but there's a, that's a really good one because um, Fernie's really good at, create, at condensing what the article says into an introductory paragraph so if you just read the introductory paragraphs to all of the articles you'd have a sense of who said what where when um, so that's a really good collection. But I'd say, yeah, there's some really big voices. So I do enjoy Griselda Pollock. I think things that she writes, she writes with, she writes from a dual perspective of sort of um, socialist uh, concerns, social concerns and social history. But she also writes with a feminist agenda as well. And um, and she puts a lot of art on a social platform. So it's not, I sort of do this with medieval art. When I look at something like a stained glass window or a manuscript illumination, I'm fascinated by the object in front of me, but I also want to use it as a window or a door through to the world that created it. So I sort of see it as a gateway. Now, a lot of Puritan art historians would hate that thought because it's about the paint, it's about the mm. thing there, it's about the style, it's about the brush strokes. But, you know, I, I see it from the point of view of an iconographer. I want to understand the world that makes the art. And that's actually what, what Griselda Pollock does from a modern perspective. When she looks at the Impressionists, she wants to understand what Paris was like during the Impressionists, what how women were treated at that time. You've <laughs> got your, So Julian of Norwich, who you and Josie know a lot about. I know very little about Julian of Norwich. Okay. So that, was that, was that your first book? No, no that's... that's my second book. So first book was on the private lives of saints, which was, oh, yeah. um, again, I... I <laughs> I can't, you always try and, being Freudian, <laughs> you always try and trace back why you end up these, taking these pathways through life. And the only reason I can think that I got so hooked on particularly the saints when I wrote my first book was that I grew up in a Polish-Irish Catholic household. Now, that does not mean by any means that I'm a churchgoer or, you know, that I, it, you know, that it's, that it's particularly something that I went out to do. But when I was reading about the Anglo-Saxon period, it was these names that kept popping up, St. Bede, St. Anselm, St. Um, Cuthbert. And, and what I realised was actually, when we talk about saints in the Anglo-Saxon period, we're really talking about celebrities. We're talking about the oh. big members of the community that are, are 
power players. And they're, they're not you know, monks in herb gardens. They are politicians, they're warriors, they're, they're what, princesses. You know, they're people from all sectors of life and all different backgrounds. And that's what really appealed to me. I didn't want to write another biography about a rich person. I wanted to look at, at a misunderstood section of society and see if we could learn something about the time. So that really, that excites me. I love stuff like that. I love cultural transition and trying to look for the reasons why why these people emerge when they do uh, which is kind of why I fell in love with Julian I, I find her an absolute anomaly the fact she could write when she did I mean she experienced her visions in 1373 she was writing at a time where the black death had wiped out a third of the population yeah where England was at war with France in the Hundred Years War where there were two popes a schism in the church where heresy meant that people were being pulled out of their houses and burnt and yet she writes this text that is so calm and so balanced and I, I just find that amazing when history is throwing you all these curveballs and, and we think, you know, the research I did for this book she probably was a married woman with kids um, but people around her, her family, her friends would have been decimated by one or other plague um, and yet she could find this this quiet hope and write the first book we know of by a woman in English. Wow. She's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but did, so you, did she came on your radar then, did she, Jay? Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, uh, yeah, I remember really, uh, like, loving reading her and stuff. But I, it's frustrating to me because I don't think I fully appreciated any of that historical context when I was studying her. And what I remember about it was, like, just the, the things, that, like the religious nature of it like I was given three pains and yes. I was given this so I can sort of like my memories of it a bit are a bit hazy which is a bit embarrassing but yeah that's exactly how I was I I didn't reread Julian from when I was an undergrad until when I made the program a couple of years ago huh. I hadn't read her in that time and in my head it was exactly the same I had these I always remember it being this kind of very spiritual heavy text yeah very kind of you know hard to read you couldn't read it through cover to cover but when I went back to it later in life, it just it just hit me in a completely different way. I remember being absolutely seduced by Marjorie Kemp. That was the problem. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Marjorie Kemp is like the jazzy one. Bonkers. Like she's all like fireworks and she's all like, sure, sure, I'll make you up some cool stuff. And Gillian Venari is just like, I'm just going to warm myself in here exactly. and write something very quiet about divine love and just chill out. Yeah, Marjorie Kemp is like coming in on a donkey. She is screaming. crying in front of bishops, like yes. being arrested, dragged off. She's, she's She was so much more attractive when I was 18. I was like, mm. oh my God, Marjorie Kemp is like that mad aunt at the wedding that, that gets drunk and embarrasses everybody. Yeah, and also, like, I feel like it's really interesting, like this period of like things like the York plays, you really mm. can feel like the fun and the like unruliness of it and how different it was as a society and stuff well i think it's uh, it's pre-reformation you know you've got this whole sense in which religion is it's ubiquitous it's everywhere mm. so if it is everywhere people are going to play with it in different ways they're going to interpret it in different ways and and you know they do stick heresy is a very big problem it's really rising in the 14th century and you know there is a sense of the thought police trying to work out who believes what at this stage but but you're right you know cre- creative creatively people were taking their own version and that's in a way why the reformation happens the reformation doesn't doesn't happen overnight it's centuries building up of people challenging the status quo pushing against the edges and julian is one of those people who's pushing against the edges but there's there's hundreds of lost voices that were all building up to this great moment to martin luther and the 
the theses, but actually, you know, she's part of that process. Wow. I mean, one of your subheadings is existentialist, transcendentalist, perennialist, or unique. I was really proud of that <laughs> one. What <laughs> is, because I don't know, what is it, because I've got that book, The Perennial Philosophy by uh, um, Old Suxley, but I haven't read it. What is a perennialist? And now you see, you've grabbed my book away from me, and I was going to give you the quote, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, Josie but grabbed the book, Josie. I didn't. No, <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's what I wanted to do is try and find different modern theoretical approaches that could be misapplied to Julian. Hmm. So, you know, transcendentalism is an easy one because she does this scene about the hazelnut in, in, in the hand, seeing it from seeing the world as a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. So there's this great sense about, um, uh, you know, the idea that the world is, it can be conceived of externally and that there is, she's also got this amazing sense of the passage of time. And that's the perennialist as well, this idea that um, actually, you know, in the great cycles of time our lives are very small moments and so the visionaries the mystics try and see their own insignificance on a much greater scale the mystics are really attractive to modern thinkers because they do seem to sort of tap into almost our our idea of space now so I quote Chris Hadfield the um, astronaut in this and he talks about going around the earth and seeing it on the however many hundredth time round and just seeing the temporal patience of the earth the idea that it it heals itself that when you're way up in space you don't see the little individual pains you see something further up so so all of these you know existentialist transcendentalist perennialist it's they're all different versions of how people are trying to make sense of um religious themes across different religions but on a much longer time scale. So perennialists would argue that there's a binding uh, entity, the divine, that runs back right the way through time and that human beings have constantly been trying to find that divine, but they couch it in different religions, different frameworks. Um, So, yeah, that was why I picked those particular three. But one of the big problems is that when you try and approach a, a, a medieval writer like Julian and throw modern theories and modern ideas onto her. You can't do that. She was writing at her time with no awareness of these things. You know, she didn't had no philosophical grounding that would have taken her to this point. And so it's very selective and you read selectively. And what I wanted to do with this was actually say, no, let's not just label her as one of these other philosophical movements. Let's appreciate her as unique, as the person that wrote what she did when she did, which was exceptional. And, you know... I. I have a real issue about hero worship and geniuses. I mean, I've already talked about trying to get my students to pull the, you know, pull the giants off the pedestal. Mm. I feel like that too. You know, I sometimes get people coming up to me going, oh my God, you're on TV. Mm. You must be like amazing. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely not. I'm no different to you. And just don't even say that to me. But then, but then you get certain individuals who go through time and you say, actually, you were exceptional. And, and they're rare, but I think she was one of them. I think she was truly exceptional as a human being. Wow. To be able to write what she did with no formal education, with um, you know, no access to books or information, um, you know, just to create something so complete as the Divine Book of, of Revelations, to be able to co- create that in her head, the spider's web of ideas that it encompasses, she must have had the most extraordinary mind. And that excites me. Mm. You said that uh, when you first read Sylvia Plath, when you given it, you, you went, oh, my, that's me. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, 20 years on, uh, what are the books you go, oh, that's me. <laughs> so wh- where have we gone from the uh, anxious New York uh, youth <laughs> to uh, what you are now? 
Oh my gosh. You know what's so tragic is I'd probably say Julian because <laughs> I spend so much time re- writing and reading and stuck in my room. So every morning you um, look in the mirror and you go, hmm, transcendentalist, existentialist, yeah. perennialist, oh, which, which, which am I? Yeah. Oh, which hat am I wearing? That um, would be great. I want to see one of those awful old shampoo adverts that you use it. Transcendentalist, existentialist, <laughs> perennialist, yeah. Why do I have to be just one? <laughs> I, no, I, I do think uh, the Sylvia Plath thing, yeah, I mean, I was... It wasn't that I had a, a misspent youth, but I had a very kind of, yeah, exciting. I was in a band and so we used to What was the name of your band? Like, oh, this is all... Role Models. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, play it cool, play it down. So what kind of thing were you at that... I mean, I'm thinking at that point, of course, was there was a lot of the, 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 the Riot Girl scene. scene was exactly. well, well, I was in Reading. Scene. That's where I was. But there's right. the Reading, like the Ready Pop yeah. scene. There's yeah. so right. much going that on was, that, that time. was me, Reading. So oh. I grew up in just outside Reading. So yeah, Reading was very cool when I was... Yeah, 18. By the time I got to university, actually, I felt like I'd done a lot of stuff. I felt like, actually, I wanted to just read by then. Mm. <laughs> Everyone else is going out and getting wasted. I'm like, actually, I'll just sit in the library if that's <laughs> all right. I'm okay. Um, so, yeah, Sylvia Plath kind of chimed with those sort of 15, 16-year-old angst. Now I'd say, um, I mean, <laughs> bizarrely, when I have any time that I'm not reading scholarship or reading academic stuff, I absolutely am obsessed with detective novels mm. and just consume them by <laughs> the bucket load. In Who a are really, your favourites? Val McDermott, I adore. So, because I was, I went on the university challenge and she beat me. And so oh. I looked her up after. I was like, "Who is this woman?" Who, oh my god, her books are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. What um, was your college? What's say again? What was your college? When I was in undergrad, I was at St Anne's. And was that who you university challenged? Yeah, uh. I know. So I went back for the Christmas one and did it. We oh did really god. well. We got to the final. We had the first ever semi-final with all eight women. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, what of her books would you most recommend? Because, like, I've only just got into reading detective novels really? and I feel like I missed out. Like, plotting for me is something that when I write things, I find plotting so difficult and it's just not part of how I write. Like, what I want to write is, like, very gentle conversations that mm. are quiet. And so when people can put something together that cranks up and works in that way, I'm like... Just well, thrilled. A, oh, you see, I will tell. Oh, yeah, okay. So I will at least tell you that my next project is fiction. Mm. And That's exciting. Yeah, which is my dream. So if you'd asked me at 15, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was a children's author. Wow. And so I've kind of gone through lots of different ways in life and might be coming back around to one. But yes, it's fiction. And it's um, and what's really odd, because it's the first piece of fiction I've written, I didn't know if I could do it. I genuinely was just thinking, you know, wanted this my whole life but can I do it and the thing that that actually I found I'm quite good at because of doing articles and writing academic books is the plotting I can plot like section by section exactly what's going to happen and and do that thing as you say of sort of ratcheting up the action so it's now trying to get into the the sensitivity and the dialogue and the description but actually um I think detective novels are great for that because they're the more I consume the more I'm aware of where the author's taking you so you you know that you are on this journey and the narrative has to go in certain directions and then you get the curveball the surprise the unexpected and it, it becomes so formulaic but it's quite refreshing to anticipate the formulae as they come so I always say that you know, all you know this being an English student but all literature literary genres have their formulae and and one of the things that we try and do as scholars is work out why those formulae are successful mm. and it's the same in art you know artists have formulae that they work to some just have the touch that makes it better than others have you seen that incredible meme where they put the golden 
What's that thing called? It's Golden like a, section. Uh, yeah, is that where, like where it's like a snail? Oh yeah, it's Fibonacci sequence moving inwards on the snails. Yeah, snail Golden ratio. Is ratio. Golden yeah. ratio. Golden ratio. That's two the one. to one. Yeah. And they put that on. Um, they put that on um, fo- famous photos. And they put it on kind of pop culture things. Yeah. And it always works. But this is why, like, studying English literature is so exciting and, like, such a wonderful companion for the rest of your life because it's so big and it's so broad and it never leaves you. You're always like, oh, that reminds me of that, which reminds me of that. And it yeah. is, it's so enriching. Everyone thinks, you know, you've got to do incredibly useful, practical things at university, but actually to take those years to culturally enrich yourself whichever of the arts you go into you will get that sense of time unfolding and minds across the ages that will never leave you mm. and that is soft skills for business <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's one of my least favourite things I went to a charity shop before coming here obviously always and you know when you see a really brilliant title for a book and you go that sounds really fascinating and then you pull it out and it goes various different business skills there, you know, but they no. always have a title you go oh this sounds like it's all about existential anxiety yep. and, uh, and boxing <laughs> and then you go uh, you actually can't... business skills <laughs> yeah. awful oh well thank you so much thank you you've got to go Brilliant. to Kensington Palace we kept you too long there's your Julian Norwich Thank you. thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, what lovely people you are. You can listen are. to your uh, brilliant Art Detective podcast. And you, is your series still on BBC Four at the moment? I'm not sure. I think it's, it might have just finished, but we're doing another one now. So. Yeah, because you had one that I remember you were a little bit annoyed. It was up against... What were you put oh, up against? God. Oh, God. Football do- and Doctor, Doctor Who, Who and oh. just everything. And I was like, come on. You want to learn about monasteries? Of course <laughs> you do. And it was also... The worst thing was, it was the monks Doctor Who that you were up against. <laughs> oh. It was that the, the, the monks trilogy. It, hard <laughs> choice, people. But yeah, no. <laughs> Thank you very much. We will put up on the website links to uh, your books and your podcasts. And uh, Josie is going to be on your Art Detective podcast. She certainly yeah, is. And that. you can also hear the, the one we did about uh, uh, Stanley Spencer. Thank you very much. Thank Bye. Thanks very much for listening. As usual, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon supporters who make this possible. This week, we'd like to thank Luke Jackson, Deborah McNanamon. McNanamon? I think that's right. Yes, Deborah McNanamon. Uh, Ellie Moforth, Neil McComb, Sean Vrabel, Charlotte White, Natalie Oson, Stacey Morris, James Morrison, and Simon Slightholm. And the Box of Books winner this week is Malcolm Franks. Don't forget, if you'd like to check on the reading list for this particular episode or any episodes or indeed find out other guests that we've had on, the full list of both those things is at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm.